This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. One year ago, in September 2020, the Trump administration's Center for Disease Control issued a regulation barring the eviction of millions of tenants across the country until the end of 2020. The administration asserted the power to make such regulation was based on the congressional statute that reads, the CDC director, quote, may provide for such inspection, fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, pest extermination, destruction of animals, or articles found to be so infected or contaminated as to be sources of dangerous infection to human beings, and other measures, as in his judgment may be necessary, unquote. Since issuing the original regulation, the CDC and Congress repeatedly extended the moratorium until July 31st, 2021, after which the Biden administration issued a second, more narrowly defined moratorium to expire in October. Setting aside the efficacy of a moratorium to stop a wave of evictions or to protect delinquent renters from COVID-19, the regulation raised broad legal concerns about the limit of power delegated by Congress to an executive agency. What checks on power do Congress, our citizens, or our courts have to challenge the broad authority assumed by the executive agency? And what legal remedies have been marshaled against the moratorium to determine the contours of the limits of that power? My guest today is George Mason University professor Ilya Soman. Professor Soman has written extensively on the legality, constitutionality, and historical precedents of the eviction moratorium. As a constitutional scholar, he's examined the legal challenges to the regulation and analyze what the courts have said and are likely to say about the limiting principles in the delegation of power to the CDC and other executive agencies. When I return, I'll be joined by George Mason law professor, Ilya Soman. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi, and I'm now joined by George Mason law professor, Ilya Soman. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Ilya. Thank you very much for having me. All right. So, so the topic today, we're going to talk about the new CDC eviction moratorium. We're going to talk about its, its legality, its constitutionality, uh, even its implications for how we want to govern ourselves as a, as a nation. Before we talk about the new CDC moratorium that just came out last week, let's talk about the old one. Let's, uh, let's go back in time and, and talk about when uh, the first CDC moratorium uh, was implemented, perhaps talk about the logic behind it, uh, and then go from there and work our way back towards present day. Where did this all begin? Yeah, this actually began under the Trump administration in September of last year, which now seems forever ago. Uh, and at that time, uh, the CDC, most likely under pressure from the White House, issued a moratorium on evictions nationwide, which had some limitations, but essentially it applied to the eviction of uh, any individual who earned up to $99,000 a year or any uh, dual earner household of up to $198,000 a year, which, by the way, is way higher than the national average household income of about $61,000 or $62,000. Uh, uh, and, you know, there were a few other constraints as well, such as that the uh, the person uh, being evicted or risking eviction would have to certify that uh, they had suffered financial risk uh, or an ability to pay due in part to the pandemic and the like. Uh, but basically, the CDC ordered this uh, and uh, the initial order issued under the Trump administration expired in December. Uh, but in late December, 
when Congress passed another in its series of so-called COVID stimulus bills. And one of the provisions in the bill was a congressionally legislated moratorium uh, that uh, uh, so it extended moratorium and made it legislated, but it extended only till January 31st. Uh, so uh, only for about a month uh, when, of course, by the time that extension expired, the new Biden administration was in office and the new Biden CDC, again, probably at the behest of the White House, uh, in effect, reinstated the old uh, moratorium that had previously been done uh, under the Trump administration. So once the uh, brief legislatively authorized moratorium expired, uh, they again did it purely through executive power. Uh, then the Biden administration extended that moratorium two other times with the most recent extension ending July 31st. Meanwhile, under both Trump and Biden, uh, there was extensive litigation of the, over the moratorium. We'll talk about the legal issues in a moment, I assume. And there were nine court decisions on it, plus a Supreme Court ruling that wasn't quite formally on the merit. The large majority of those decisions went against the legality of the moratorium. Okay. So it was expected that Biden would end the moratorium were not renewed again after July 31st. All right. You just gave us a lot of information. I want to pack it slowly. Sure. Um, let's, uh, for our, our, um, our listeners who aren't constitutional scholars, uh, the CDC is part of uh, the executive branch, right? It's, it's part of uh, yes. uh, under the president. Uh, but of course, all those um, departments are created you know, I'm an Article One guy. They're created by Congress. Is that right? Um, what authority does the CDC? You know, what's the nature of having a, an, an executive branch uh, department have such power to uh, intervene in? I don't know how many millions of of uh, leases there are in America, but uh, what gives them the power to do that? Uh, so the CDC uh, obviously is an executive branch agency. It was created, as its name implies, to uh, to uh, uh, to uh, combat the spread of contagious disease. Uh, and they claim both the Trump administration and now the Biden administration that the authority to order an eviction moratorium comes from a law called 42 U.S. Code Section 264, uh, which says that in order to, from relevant part, in order to prevent the transmission of communicable diseases from abroad or from one state into another, uh, the CDC can do things like provide for inspection, fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, pest extermination, destruction of animals or articles found to be infected, uh, and other measures as in his judgment may be necessary. And it's this other measures uh, uh, part that the CDC is relying. They say other measures means any other measures of any kind that might stop the spread of contagious disease. And then they say, well, if somebody is evicted, they might end up homeless or they might end up living in a tightly packed shelter of some kind, and that could spread the uh, COVID-19. Uh, okay. and, and so that's where they claim the authority comes from. So uh, that's a pretty extensive list of, of capabilities. So um, roughly speaking, the assumption is, and we've seen this uh, like in other countries where they had to destroy all the chickens or all the cows to, to uh, knock down a disease, uh, the CDC has that authority because it may need that authority if it's an emergency, right? If it's to stop the spread of disease. It enumerates quite a few powers there that you just uh, mentioned. I'm impressed that you, I don't know if you have it committed to memory, but uh, there are quite a few powers, but, uh, and then it has this clause at the end says, and any other, uh, you know, similar. Wouldn't, again, I'm not a legal scholar, isn't it incumbent on the CDC uh, to have that final clause 
have some relevance to the first part, meaning yes. there, there, it, it seems to be that if, if you, if, if everything's included in any other method, their power is limitless. There has yes. to be an implied limit based on the first part of the clause, right? Yeah. Yes, you have hit on exactly the reason why many courts have ruled against the legality of the uh, initial version of the moratorium. We'll talk in a moment about the, the new one that uh, the Biden administration put in a few, a few days ago. Uh, but you could read any other measure, just reading any measure of any kind that might reduce the spread of disease. Uh, uh, however, it's more plausible to read it as any measure similar to the ones that are previously listed, which roughly speaking are things uh, that relate to the uh, inspection or destruction of items that are infected or uh, uh, particular spaces that are infected and the like, as opposed to doing anything that might in any way reduce the spread of a contagious disease, which of course would give the CDC the power to suppress almost any human activity, uh, because almost any human activity has some risk of spreading disease, at least any activity involves people interacting together. And by the way, this is not limited to particularly dangerous diseases like COVID-19. Uh, it could apply to any infectious disease, even a relatively modest one like the flu, the common cold, and so on. So if you buy the interpretation of this first put forward by the Trump administration, later by the Biden administration, uh, then the CDC would have virtually limitless power to control almost all human activity within the United States. Uh, and that both is a dubious reading of the statute. And if it is the right reading of the statute, it would uh, probably render the statute unconstitutional uh, because uh, the Supreme Court has said there are limits to how much power Congress can delegate to the executive branch. It's called the, the non-delegation doctrine. There's a lot of dispute about how much delegation is too much. Legal scholars and others have uh, you know, disagreed on this, but if anything is too much, it's delegating the power to suppress any human activity of any kind, virtually any time the CDC wants. So uh, again, I'm trying to keep up as a, as a layman. This uh, non-delegation clause uh, says that Congress can't merely say to a department, do whatever you guys think is necessary. Uh, we, we've got your back. They have to, in a sense, have some constraint that says, look, we'll yeah. do this and not do that. Uh, and as, as it appears now, if it indeed is read the way it's interpreted by both the Trump and the Biden administration, it, it's probably unconstitutional. Uh, if it's constrained, then they ought not to have done it in the first place, right? So the clause is either yes. constitutional or the action is unconstitutional. Yeah. So uh, to be clear, there's not a specific non-delegation clause in the constitution. Rather, there's a list of congressional powers uh, which, uh, including the power that authorizes the statute in the first place. Uh, and uh, if the power belongs to Congress, then both the Supreme Court and many legal scholars have said there has to be some limit about the extent to which Congress can delegate that power to the executive branch. They can't simply say, you know, we give all our power to President Trump or President Biden or some other president and President Trump or, or Biden can make any regulations he thinks necessary to implement Congress's power in the Constitution. That would clearly be unconstitutional. And this is uh, and, the, and the administration's interpretation of this statute is not that far from it, because it essentially says you, the CDC, uh, can suppress any activity you think necessary to stop the spread of contagious disease, uh, and that can be virtually any activity. So, and, and I think you implied it earlier uh, in your remarks that 
uh, it doesn't require an, a pandemic or an extraordinary disease. Sure. It could be any disease that involves human health. So it's yeah, the statute just refers to communicable disease. It mm-hmm. doesn't say especially dangerous communicable disease. It doesn't say uh, one that's more communicable than others, uh, and so on. Let's start at the foundation of that premise. Uh, you know, it's a health organization, um, and presumably, it's only uh, involved in uh, decisions that involve health. Is it clear? Is there science that um, you know, peer-reviewed science that suggests people who are being evicted um, are exposing themselves to greater health risks than uh, than were they not to be evicted? In other words, does evic- evicting people necessarily uh, expose them to harm? So I think there's some dispute over that. But the more fundamental flaw in these uh, CDC's assumptions is the idea that if you didn't have this moratorium, there would be this massive upsurge in evictions. Uh, that just isn't true. As we know from data over the last year or more, when we look at uh, places where there was not a state eviction moratorium uh, or and, and periods when there was no federal eviction moratorium in place either, you did not see an upsurge in evictions during the pandemic. Uh, and you generally actually don't see big upsurges in evictions during economic downturns. Uh, and that's true for many reasons. One reason is that landlords know uh, that if they evict people in the midst of a huge economic downturn, then uh, it's not actually that likely they will necessarily get better or higher paying tenants uh, in return. Moreover, in most states, eviction processes are far from instantaneous. They're actually pretty costly and can take many weeks or months. So in general, landlords, in most cases, only use eviction as a last resort for seriously problematic tenants, either just are deadbeats or they damage the property or are dangerous and disruptive and the like. Uh, so uh uh, I would add also that at this point, evictions are less likely than before because uh, the uh, uh, both the unemployment, the unemployment rate has fallen enormously and wages have risen. So the number of people who uh, have any significant economic problems in paying their rent is much lower than it would have been a year ago. So if we didn't have a massive upsurge in evictions back then, uh, it's even less likely that we would have one now. However, if you do make it difficult for or impossible for landlords to get rid of seriously problematic or deadbeat tenants, that is likely over time to make landlords more reluctant to put properties on the market. Uh, in the first place, they may charge higher rent and they may also screen tenants more carefully if they worry that at any time when there's an emergency in a nation uh, that the CDC could at the, or some other federal agency can at the drop of a hat impose an eviction moratorium. Uh, and all of those kinds of changes would likely damage the long-term interest, not just of landlords, but also of uh, uh, poorer and more at-risk tenants, because those are the ones who are most likely to be priced out or screened out by background checks and the like, uh, if prices rise, uh, if landlords decide to do more extensive background checks and so on. Sure, sure, that's a great point to make, whereas it may see at the, at the first blush that eviction moratoriums help the poor and needy, in fact, in the long run, uh, because it makes the activity of being a landlord more expensive, it therefore means being a tenant will be more expensive and, and may well price the most needy out of the market in the future. So that's an important thing to uh, to mention, I had actually seen a study also in Reason that uh, did uh, a very uh, comprehensive comparison or challenged the uh, health data that suggested that in those areas that eviction moratoriums uh, were implemented, that they had lower uh, rates of uh, infection and death uh, when compared with those that did have a, a, a moratorium. So there seemed to be 
virtually negligible effect on health um, uh, outcomes where moratoriums were imposed. Uh, do you want to say anything to that study? It was a, a colleague at Reason. So I have not looked in detail on that specific study, so I don't want to comment on it too much. But I think even if you accept the assumption that an upsurge in evictions would cause uh, a great increase in the spread of COVID, it just isn't true that there would likely be a huge mass of additional evictions from this. I would add also that with the widespread availability of vaccines, uh, that uh, people who are at risk can easily mitigate that risk just by getting the vaccine if they haven't done so already. Of course. Uh, that makes the situation now uh, different, obviously, than it was during the first couple of iterations of the moratorium when you know, either as in last year, the vaccine was not available at all or early this year, uh, it was not available yet to most people. Now, we're, we're talking about the fact that uh, this is an executive branch uh, decision, the CDC, uh, but for a brief time, I guess from January 1 to end of January, the, the Congress did appropriately uh, intervene and make it a, a legislative act. Uh, and then that wore out, and now we're back in the uh, CDC department. Wouldn't the proper way to, if if this were the will of 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 the Congress and the legislator, our, our elected representative, if it were their will, couldn't they impose a very legal, unchallengeable uh, eviction moratorium? Not that they would, but could they? So under the original meaning of the Constitution and the originally understood scope of federal powers, it may be that they could not because what Congress actually has is the power to control interstate commerce. And under the original meaning, a rental contract within one state would not be considered interstate commerce. Mm -hmm. However, under current Supreme Court precedent, which the court is unlikely to overrule anytime soon, uh, Congress has nearly total power to regulate almost all economic activity. Uh, and leaseholds, uh, lease contracts obviously are a form of economic activity. So if Congress were to enact uh, an eviction moratorium, uh, then uh, it almost certainly would stand up in court. The reason why this one has had trouble uh, is because it's enacted by the executive branch. Though I should note that while an eviction moratorium would be within the scope of the powers of Congress, as currently understood by the Supreme Court, it could be that an eviction moratorium where there is no compensation for the landlords, that could be a violation of the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment. There is now actually a lawsuit underway challenging the federal eviction moratorium on the grounds that uh, requiring landlords to accept tenants that they otherwise would have the legal right to remove, that that is a physical occupation of their property uh, without their consent. And under uh, the most recent Supreme Court precedent on these issues, the Cedar Point decision decided just in June, uh, uh, even a temporary physical occupation, at least in most cases, qualifies as a taking uh, for which the government must pay just compensation. Uh, this issue is has just begun to be litigated, so we don't know about the outcome, uh, but I do think this creates a, a separate legal vulnerability for a moratorium, and that would be a vulnerability for a congressionally mandated moratorium as well, albeit Congress could fix that problem simply by appropriating uh, money to compensate the landlords. Sure, of course, but the CDC doesn't have its own money, so uh, sure. uh, that's it, uh, right. The, the CDC does, well, it does, it does have a budget, but it does not have a budget for compensating landlords, uh, nor uh, 
can it presumably, nor can it reach into the uh, to the federal piggy bank, so to speak, of its own accord and say, well, we're going to pay compensation. Right. So um, in the case of um, let's talk about this legal taking, because it sounds in my, to my mind, um, a layman's mind, uh, clearly uh, intervening in someone's property, meaning they're saying neither, uh, you know, by not allowing uh, a landlord to evict a tenant, it, it's depriving not just of another tenant, but of, of access to his own property. He's, he owns it and can't do anything sure. with it. So that seems like a taking. Um, share with our listeners uh, what, what that means, what the limits are. Uh, you know, let's go back to an earlier principle. I'm a, I'm a cow farmer and the CDC decides I have to you know, uh, kill and burn my, my herd because they have foot and mouth disease or, or something like that. You know, I'm, I'm making up a scenario, but uh, would, I ha- would I be entitled to compensation if the government steps in and, and destroys my property to, to um, uh, reduce the uh, effect of a pandemic? So this is a good question, which has been litigated during the pandemic. There is this, so let's back up a moment, under the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment, uh, if the government takes private property, they're required to pay just compensation. Uh, and there's a long-standing dispute about what exactly it means for the government to take private property. For example, if they just restrict what you can do with your land, is that a taking? And uh, in many cases, Supreme Court says, no, that's not a taking. At the other extreme, if the government says, well, uh, we are just occupying your land permanently, almost everybody agrees that that would be a taking. In its recent decision in the Cedar Point case, the Supreme Court made clear that in most cases, uh, even a temporary physical occupation mandated by the government is automatically a taking. So uh, if, for instance, the government says you must allow these people to hold a party at your house uh, for the next month, uh, even though it's not forever, it's just for next month, that would still be a taking. Uh, there is the so-called police power exception to takings where courts going back to the 19th century have held that uh, in certain instances, things that would otherwise be takings would not be qualified as takings that require compensation if the measuring question is necessary to protect the public health or safety. And that does include some decisions where the government, say, uh, requires the destruction of infected plants or animals or the like to pose a threat to others. Uh, however, the courts have never said that any uh, invasion of property rights that could in some way promote health or in some way promote safety uh, would uh, not be a taking on that basis. Uh, and the connection between an eviction moratorium and threats to health is at the very least much more tenuous uh, than if you have diseased cattle uh, that uh, the government wants to kill or, or then you know they, they want to confiscate, say, you know, your facility that makes anthrax that could easily spread next door or something like that. Uh, here, at most, what they're eliminating is only a very tiny risk. Uh, and it's a risk that can be easily mitigated in other ways. Courts have in recent years said things like that, for instance, uh, when in 2017, during Hurricane Harvey, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers flooded many thousands of people's property to prevent worse flooding elsewhere. Uh, and they, among other things, the government said, well, this is the police power. We're just doing that to protect the safety of other people. And courts said, no, that's 
you know, that's still a taking. Uh, and there, the connection between mitigate, between protecting health and safety and what they did was much less tenuous uh, than in this eviction moratorium case. So we don't yet know how this takings case is going to work out. It was only filed just a few days ago, but I think there's at least a pretty good there's at least a pretty good chance the courts will rule that this is a taking, uh, which doesn't mean that the government can't do it at all. But it does mean that the government, if they do do something like this, would have to pay compensation. So and again, uh, looking backward, um, that would go, you know, if te- a temporary taking is a taking, then uh, those people who have had the moratorium imposed on them and they can yes. demonstrate damages, that, you know, going from day one. Yes, that's right. So a temporary occupation uh, is a taking. Yes. Uh, the government might have some defenses here in particular. They could try to raise the police power exception. So it's not certain the plaintiffs will win, but I think there is a good chance they will win. If they do win, there will be an issue about how much compensation exactly they're owed. So in some cases, uh, it might not actually be a lot of money. Uh, it will probably vary a lot from, from, from case to case. Uh, but uh, that vulnerability is out there both for the original moratorium and for the new version uh, that the Biden administration just put in place a few days ago. Sure. I'm eager to get to the current events, but one more uh, um, um, swipe at the legal side. So let's, uh, again, go back to the original moratorium and uh, I've been harmed. I believe I've been harmed Uh, in in a nutshell or in an abbreviated form. How does one, in a sense, uh, take on the CDC. I, you know, I'm a landlord or a group of sure. landlords. Uh, what do I do? Where do I start? And and where are we now on that? So numerous cases have been filed by landlords uh, or by groups of landlords or by public interest groups uh, representing the landlords. Full disclosure, some of the cases involved have been litigated by the Pacific Legal Foundation, uh, which is a public interest law firm where my wife works, uh, although she herself is not involved in litigating these cases. I also have uh, served in a very minor role as an unpaid advisor to the uh, POF on some of these cases. Uh, though my role is very minor and not actually even official, but I want to disclose that. So that <laughs> we need our disclosures. So I appreciate know it. about it and, mm-hmm. and, and can't claim that I'm hiding it. Uh, but uh, basically, if you're a landlord uh, who has tenants whom you're trying to evict during the pandemic and they fall within the scope of the moratorium, then you can go to federal court uh, and file a case arguing that this is illegal, either because the statute doesn't authorize it or because it's unconstitutional, or in most cases, some combination of both. And we have now had nine court decisions in the lower courts on this. Uh, Six out of those nine ruled that the moratorium is illegal on various different types of grounds. In addition, uh, one of these cases went for a procedural ruling to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court did not rule on the final merits. Uh, All that it ruled was whether the uh, whether an injunction against the moratorium that is a temporary order preventing it from going into effect, uh, whether the court ruled on whether that should be instituted. And five out of nine justices said the answer is no. But it's also the case that five out of nine justices indicated that uh, they believe the moratorium was illegal. It's just that at least one of those five 
Uh, Justice Kavanaugh said, well, I think it's illegal. He wrote a concurring opinion saying this. I think he said, I think it's illegal, but I also think for procedural reasons that we shouldn't issue a preliminary injunction. We should wait to do that until there's a final resolution on the merits. So that gives us a window into what the Supreme Court thinks. So uh, that was a fairly that was close, proximate to the end of the um, uh, the moratorium. in the first place, right? It was going to it's going to expire, and they said, "Look, uh, we could intervene, but it's going to expire anyway. So uh, there's no not really much point to doing that. They let it expire because it was perhaps procedurally an easier way to go." So Justice Kavanaugh gave several technical procedural reasons for why he voted the way he did. One is that it would expire anyway. The other is he worried that immediately terminating the moratorium at the at that time, which is now about five weeks ago or so, uh, would cause a variety of problems. But his reasoning there had to do with the technical criteria for issuing a preliminary injunction, which again is, is in order to stop the uh, government activities being challenged even before there is a final ruling on the merits by the courts. Uh, but on the underlying substantive issue, he made clear that he thinks this is illegal. And at least four other justices also think that. We know that because four other justices uh, would have simply said they would have simply uh, uh, rec- instituted the preliminary injunction. And one of the criteria for instituting it is that uh, the plaintiffs seeking the injunction have a high likelihood of winning on their substantive claims. So now this is a long setup to July 31st. Uh, we have a president who uh, came on and actually I thought was rather, rather candid, surprisingly candid, saying, you know, I acknowledge that uh, this probably isn't constitutional. I think it's uh, uh, something I'm going to do anyway. Well, let's let's start there. When a uh, executive branch is going to uh, take an action, um, is it incumbent on uh, well, Congress as well? Is it inc- incumbent on a branch of, of the government to, in a sense, police itself and not do actions it knows to be unconstitutional? In other words, uh, are they entitled to just float an idea out there and see what happens with the court? Or is it incumbent on each branch, the Congress and president, to, in a sense, police itself and not do things it knows is unconstitutional? Ideally, they should police themselves. Sadly, particularly in recent years, but even earlier in American history, presidents often do not, uh, both under this administration and before that, even more under the Trump administration and also to some degree under the Obama and Bush administration and others, often what they basically said is let's do as much of our agenda as we think we can get away with. Uh, the only difference in this case is that Biden has been more open than presidents usually are about saying that that's what he's doing. So what happened is for a time in July, the Biden administration was sending signals saying that we're going to allow the moratorium to expire on July 31st. Uh, and Uh, because we think otherwise we would just lose in court. Uh, Then there was an upsurge of hostility to that idea on the left flank of the Democratic Party. There were protests, howls of outrage and so forth. The Biden administration said, well, why doesn't Congress, in which Democrats have narrow majorities, why doesn't Congress simply enact a new moratorium? He contacted the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and other Democratic congressional leaders. And what they basically told him was, we don't have the votes to do this because our majorities are very narrow and there are some moderate Democrats who don't want to have a new moratorium. And so because the Democratic majorities are so narrow to pass something over the opposition of the Republicans, uh, they would need all or almost all 
Democratic votes. And she basically said to Biden, I don't have the votes. And in a comment that has sort of gone viral, she said, you should get better lawyers, uh, meaning lawyers who would tell him some <laughs> way to renew the moratorium. Uh, and Biden apparently did consult a bunch of lawyers, as he himself, a, a, a bunch of constitutional scholars who are not in the administration, in addition to lawyers within the administration who would be consulted on a you know, uh, uh, as a matter of course. And as he himself put it, the bulk of constitutional scholarship, as, as the president put it, believes that uh, this is illegal and would not stand up in court, that that is the revised version of the moratorium would not. But there is a minority who think otherwise, uh, most notably Lawrence Tribe, a famous professor from Harvard Law School. Uh, and Biden essentially has said that he decided to roll the dice, that uh, he would at least try the new moratorium. And as he put it, even if it does eventually get struck down in court, it might be enforced for a few more weeks, which in turn would give him more time to dis and state governments more time to disperse the money that Congress allocated a long time ago in the stimulus bill to help struggling tenants. There was, I think, something like $40 billion in there, but only about maybe three or four billion has actually been dispersed because the disbursement process is slow and inefficient. So in effect, uh, while they hope that you know they will win an upset victory in court here, their bigger hope is that you know, they can get away with imposing a moratorium for a few more weeks. And simultaneously, they can appease the left flank of their party. If the moratorium gets struck down, uh, Biden can say, it's not my fault. It's the fault of those nefarious courts. It's too bad that conservative judges have done this, but I did all I could. So, Ilya, you mentioned uh, the rather famous uh, Larry Tribe as a uh, um, an advisor to the the president in this matter. Um, have you been able to figure out what his and uh, uh, other attorneys like him have made as a case for uh, the constitutionality of the second moratorium? What what was their line of reasoning why it might, if you squint very hard, actually pass constitutional muster uh, in its new form? Essentially, where the new moratorium differs from the old one is that the new moratorium does not apply to the whole country. It's only limited to areas uh, of, 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 of high uh, transmission of the, uh, the, the new uh, Delta variant of COVID. However, uh, that includes areas as currently defined by the government, that includes areas where over 90% of all leasehold apartments in the US are. So it's essentially nearly the whole US. For that reason, it's not that much different from the previous moratorium. Moreover, the problem with the original moratorium was not uh, in the area that it covered, but rather in the way that it included an eviction moratorium among the measures that uh, that uh, the CDC could do. And if you include that measure, then for reasons we talked about earlier, you can do almost anything else that might potentially stop or reduce the spread of a uh, contagious disease. So uh, this still doesn't impose any meaningful limit on the scope of the power uh, because nothing in the statute says that this is limited only to areas where disease is spreading to a certain degree. Uh, if there is a limitation, it's not based on the extent of disease spread. It's based on the types of measures uh, that the CDC can take in response. And it's that, on that latter issue, the tribe's approach, like the previous approach, uh, has no real limits. Right. So it, the, the 
the first moratorium and the second moratorium were effectively the same, but uh, uh, Professor Tribe thought by narrowing it, uh, the moratorium just to areas of, the, of high infection, which as you say, represents 90% of the country, just by narrowing it that much, uh, it makes it more constitutional um, and somehow yeah. passes will pass muster yeah. in the future. Yeah, to, 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 to be clear, his view is that that would put it within the scope of the statute and then it would also make the statute constitutional because then it wouldn't be completely unlimited. Uh, but the problem is that there's still no limit on the range of measures that can be taken. Uh, and it's very hard to, re to read the statute as written as limited only to areas as limited only to a certain level of transmission. What do you think the dangers are of a uh, president doing actions that they may be aware that are unconstitutional, but uh, they believe uh, you know it's justified in that it might help a few people? What are your thoughts on um, presidents who, who 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 interpret their role in that way? Yeah, so I think there's sort of two problems. The biggest danger, though I think it's unlikely, but the biggest danger is that this might actually stand up, in which case it would set a very dangerous precedent for the CDC uh, pushed by the president to be able to uh, suppress virtually any activity of any kind. Uh, even if you trust the Biden administration to wield this authority, would you trust Trump should he come back in after 2024 or Ron DeSantis or Ted Cruz or whoever might be the next Republican president? Democrats who are comfortable with Biden having this kind of power should ask uh, whether there would be equally comfortable with a Republican president wielding it, just as, you know, back when Trump was doing this, I asked Republicans, are you comfortable with Biden having Biden or some other Democrat having this power? Even if he loses in court, I think it's a further erosion of constitutional norms in that it further reinforces this idea that obviously was already prevalent under Trump and under previous presidents that, you know, that the president should just push his agenda as far as he can uh, and that he shouldn't worry uh, about whether it's constitutional or not, that the attitude is that, you know, come sue us if you think it's unconstitutional, but until we get an adverse court decision, you know, we're just going to do what we want. And you saw that in uh, the Trump administration, even more than previous administrations, but it also certainly existed under the Obama administration and others as well. Uh, and uh, with Biden, I'm not sure that over, I don't think that overall he's worse than Trump or Obama in this respecting. On average, he's a little bit better, but it's notable that he's willing to talk even more brazenly about how you know, he's doing something he recognizes a high probability is unconstitutional, but he's going to do it anyway. Whereas the uh, under Trump, uh, Trump was in his remarks largely just indifferent to whether something was constitutional or not. And he, he couldn't accept the idea that anything he wanted to do might be illegal. Uh, and under the Obama administration, while I think there was often a similar mindset, they were more careful in the way that they talked about it. So on the one hand, maybe you can commend Biden for his candor. On the other hand, being this candid is a further erosion in some ways uh, of norms against uh, unconstitutional executive branch activity and a further erosion of the idea that the president should at least pay lip service uh, to staying within the bounds of his powers. Okay, Ilya, we now have this second moratorium. How do you see this ending? Officially, the new moratorium expires on October 3rd, though if it survives legal challenge, the administration could potentially try to extend it again, just as 
uh, the original moratorium was extended multiple times. Uh, I think it is very likely that between now and October 3rd, there will be legal rulings against it. There might even be a Supreme Court in, uh, endorsed injunction against it, uh, depending on how quickly the courts move. Uh, however, it is probably also the case that it'll take at least two or three weeks for any significant legal action against the new moratorium to uh, be taken. And that's obviously part of what the Biden administration is counting on. That, uh, so I think the courts may well move faster than usual, but even if they move faster than usual, uh, it will still take uh, at least a few weeks, most likely. Uh, that said, it will probably be faster than litigation usually is because there are already ongoing cases against the original moratorium and those complaints can easily be amended to include the new one. And indeed, several already have literally as we speak, uh, this is ongoing. Uh, that said, uh, it probably will be enforced for at least a few weeks uh, before there's any kind of major legal action against it. And of course, that's uh, what the administration is hoping for. But the uh, lawsuits uh, uh, regarding the taking, they may go on for years to come, right? So the takings lawsuit, which applies not just to this new moratorium, but to the original one, uh, that will take some months before there's a decision. If the plaintiffs win, I expect, I could be wrong, but if the plaintiffs win, I expect there will be a separate round of litigation over the question of how much compensation they should get, because uh, that will likely have to be calculated on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, the court uh, said that uh, when there is a taking, the government must pay you fair market value compensation. That is the fair market value of the property right that was taken away from you. Uh, and that's obviously going to vary a lot as between different landlords, different situations, uh, and so on. Uh, so, if the plaintiffs win in the sense of showing that there was a taking and the courts say that, the, yes, this is a taking and does require compensation, is going to take a long time before we know how much compensation there actually will be paid. Uh, but even the ruling that it is a taking would set a very important precedent uh, for future uh, eviction moratoria. Good. And, uh, and perhaps uh, if they find for the plaintiffs, provide some relief to landlords who, you know, particularly small ones, uh, may have been very, very hard hit. So if, so if they win, there would be relief. It might take a while for that relief to actually come uh, because uh, there would be a lot of scope for contestation about the question of exactly how much compensation is owed, though it's also possible, at least in some cases, the federal government would then simply just strike a deal with the landlord that rather than go through prolonged litigation about how much compensation is owed, we will just simply agree that it's going to be X amount of dollars. Uh, that could happen in some cases too. Uh, we're getting close to the end of our time. I just want to ask one fun question, and I thought it was amusing uh, just before we uh, started to record. I read a, a, an article about a, a lawsuit based on uh, a, this uh, moratorium being a Third Amendment violation. I yeah. forgot there was a Third Amendment, and I, I, you know, I go back to basic history in, uh, in uh, civics. It, it prescribes um, the government forcing you to uh, quarter soldiers, and since some of these. Uh, People who won't be evicted are soldiers. This might be quartering soldiers. So uh, maybe we could put that one to rest, uh, uh, at least acknowledging so, the audacity of the claim. So this is not a separate lawsuit. This is just a, an amicus friend of the court brief okay. uh, by an organization that promotes the Third Amendment. I think it's a pretty weak argument. I'll just very briefly summarize why. The obvious one obvious point is that the overwhelming majority of people affected by this moratorium, the overwhelming majority of tenants are obviously not soldiers. 
those few who are soldiers, uh, I think, are not acting in their official military capacity. Uh, they're just acting as private individuals like anybody else. So it's hard to make the argument that this is really quartering soldiers. Uh, maybe things would be different uh, if the Pentagon were paying their rent as part of a government uh, program to arrange housing for members of the armed forces. But in that event, it's very unlikely that they're delinquent on their rent. So I think this is a bad argument. Uh, um, uh, though I do admit that many issues involving the Third Amendment have never been litigated. It's a very little litigated amendment. So this is sort of a, a novel kind of idea. Uh, but although this is, we do, there are obviously some bad arguments against the eviction moratorium. We actually have several really good ones uh, that have already, and at least some of them prevailed in court. Uh, we mentioned already the idea that this is not within the scope of the statute that authorizes this. And that if it was within the scope, that would make the statute unconstitutional. And there's also the problem that this is likely a taking. I think those three issues are legitimate, important issues uh, that likely that have and two of them have already prevailed in many courts. Uh, and the third one, the takings issue, has at least a real chance of succeeding. And we should focus on those and not be devoted and not be diverted by, you know, Sidney Powell-like Kraken types of arguments. <laughs> Unlike Sidney Powell, uh, the critics of the eviction moratorium have a real case to make. Uh, and more likely than not, they're going to win this time. Well, that's wonderful. That's a great place to end the, the conversation. And I hope our um, listeners were able to keep up. I, I hope I was able to keep up. But, um, you know, these kinds of actions um, serve to make us all aware that uh, we're making history every day. And uh, these things matter. Uh, they set precedents that we're going to have to live with for a very long time. So you've made us all a little bit smarter. Thank you very much for your time, Ilya. Thank you very much for having me. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help the show, uh, it would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. If you want to make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, uh, you can offer us a five-star rating or a favorable review. Of course, it's always a good idea if you would help us uh, by sharing us with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me for future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.